most of you have probably heard, over a third of the calories we produce get lost or wasted. The water, fertilizer, land, capital, energy that went into all of this food ends up turning to greenhouse gases while rotting away in landfills. But what if more of these calories could be repurposed into animal feed? We're finally empowering consumers to be a part of the process to truly fight food waste and combat climate change from their kitchen by simply buying a delicious piece of chicken that now actually has a quantifiable benefit. That's Justin K. Mine of Do Good Foods, which has developed a process of converting surplus food from grocery stores into poultry feed ingredients at scale. That quantifiable benefit he's talking about is printed on the packaging of the chicken they ultimately sell. A typical six and a half pound chicken is saving four pounds of surplus grocery food, thus reducing three pounds of greenhouse gases. That's massive impact for every bird. One big key to all of this is taking a heterogeneous mix of all this food and turning it into a homogeneous feed ingredient that can be used by commercial feed mills and poultry growers at scale. We now have the infrastructure that's at scale that we just now need to duplicate across the country. And we kind of invite everyone to now be a part of that because our feed can go right into any existing feed mill infrastructure. Do Good Foods co-founder and CEO Justin Kamine on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Ag Nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode and every episode this quarter is made possible thanks to the support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Sound Agriculture. You just heard from Adam and Travis from Sound Ag on last week's episode, and this is really a great time to be talking about their source product. Because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high, and in some cases, availability itself is a real problem. So finding a better source for crop nutrients going forward is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more than nutrients already in your fields, so you can apply less fertilizer while getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to sort of wake up the soil. It's kind of like caffeine for microbes, if you will. Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's sound.ag. And make sure you stay tuned to the last part of today's episode, where you're going to hear directly from farmer Trey Hill, who's been using Source on his farm. We always thought we were putting down enough fertility, but then where we put our Source plot in, we gained like 15, 20 bushels because that's where I didn't have enough nitrogen, right? You know, most of my fields, I had enough nitrogen and it was adequate. So I wasn't really seeing these big bumps, but under that pivot, it did. And that kind of let me know that it was actually doing something which a lot of the stuff that farmers get sold, it's really hard to tell if anything's doing anything. So once we did that plot, I was like, wow, this is, this is something that I need to look into. And then we did you know, more plots the next year and got enough trial data out of that, that we were definitely getting. The ROI was pretty simple. Trey's very open and candid about what he's seeing from sources. So make sure you stay tuned to listen to that segment as well. And thank you once again to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, back to today's episode with Justin Kamine. Justin co-founded Do Good Foods with his brother Matthew to combat climate change by fighting food waste. They've created a closed-loop system with state-of-the-art infrastructure designed to upcycle surplus grocery food after community donations occur into nutritious animal feed. 
Do Good Foods' first product, Do Good Chicken, is raised using this healthy feed ingredient and can be purchased locally, giving consumers an opportunity to make an immediate environmental impact and do good for both the plate and the planet. The Kmine Brothers Company builds on the family's 40-year heritage of over $3.5 billion of infrastructure, solving macro-environmental problems. Justin shares more details about his family's background, and that's exactly where I'll drop you into today's episode with Justin Kmine of Do Good Foods. My dad, about 35, 40 years ago, was a... Uh, Part of the kind of pioneering group that helped build, own, and operate some of the largest infrastructure across the country. Um, so he started off installing boiler rooms at paper mills and greenhouses. And uh, 35 years ago, he uh, ended up becoming one of the largest independent power producers, building about $800 million of natural gas cogen facilities. And so that was from 85 to 94. And then 95, uh, we built one of the largest privately held telecom companies. So building telecom infrastructure across 40 cities. And uh, we built that platform to become one of the largest privately held telecom companies. And so when my brother and I graduated college about 12 years ago, we came up with a thesis, kind of seeing our family kind of background of the fact that large scale infrastructure could move society quickly and efficiently, so long as it was done economically and with the environment. And so about 12 years ago is when we said, well, how do we really focus on pioneering the next iteration of sustainable infrastructure at scale? And at that time, solar energy was just getting started. And we helped uh, build, own, and operate about 125 megawatts, about $400 million of solar projects uh, that we are providing cheap electricity to major companies across New Jersey, and uh, even including... uh, Six Flags Great Adventure and helping to make them one of the first kind of net zero amusement parks in the world. And then about five years ago is when solar got massively adopted, got down the cost curve. Um, And so we said, how do we take our entrepreneur infrastructure talents to really focus it on to something that we deemed was even a greater and bigger problem? And that was the fact that 40% of all the food that gets grown gets thrown away. If food waste was a country, it'd be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter. But it was really that 40% number that just kind of shocked us. Uh, we were amazed at it. And when we started to talk to some supermarkets and some other companies, we started to recognize the significance of this problem and said, well, how do we create a real large-scale sustainable infrastructure solution that could really preserve the value of those nutrients and really recreate the way our current food system operates? Very cool. We're going to talk a lot about the solution you ended up with. But before we do, I'm curious, you know, what what thought process led you to that versus looking at some of the other solutions out there? Like, you know, you see people doing like black soldier fly larva or they're, you know, going further upstream and trying to keep the waste from happening in the first place. Like what landed you on this idea? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the black soldier fly larva was probably starting around the same time of this conversation. But it was really it was a journey. It was the understanding of where is the high volume high value food coming from. And from a manufacturing perspective of taking a heterogeneous material and creating a homogeneous output, you really needed to understand how do we do things at scale and consistency across the country. And so that's why we kind of centered around supermarkets. They are densely populated around kind of every major metropolitan area. And uh, for better or worse, uh, a lot of that food is consistent across the country. 
so that we could really create and absorb the supply chain that was consistent and uh, high value across the country. Well, I think it's it's time to maybe dive into some of the details about about what you're doing specifically. You know, once you had the idea that, hey, maybe we could take some of this food that's being wasted and upcycle it into animal feed. Uh, how did you sort of test or validate that idea before you invested in, in the facility you, you, uh, you have now? Yeah, it was a long journey. So, I mean, a lot of different tests that were kind of done as to the particle size, the moisture composition, the fat composition as to how do you create a nutriently consistent pathogen-free dried animal feed product that could then go into actually being a great nutritious product for the animals. So we did a lot of kind of university trials. We did a lot of our own personal trials to kind of figure out all of that. At the end of the day, the benefit here is that when we all used to grow up on a farm, we used to take our leftovers and feed it to our chickens and pigs and pass out back. They grew healthy. They grew great. So the nutrients that we are preserving are really the natural diet of these animals, right? Chickens are omnivores. So we knew that by the inputs of the supermarket surplus grocery food that we're able to maintain the cold chain with and upcycle into this dried animal feed was a nutriently consistent and, and great product for these animals. And then getting it into the right form and function that could then go right into the existing feed mill infrastructure of many major farmers across the country was really the big kind of focus of how we went from pilot scale to kind of large scale infrastructure level. And which aspect of it ended up being more challenging than, than maybe you had originally thought? I think uh, every aspect of this business has been more challenging than I think we thought. From the logistics of picking up close to 450 supermarkets of surplus grocery food on an every couple day basis to the processing of that food to the feed, which has never before been done at the scale that we're talking about, up to 160 tons every single day going through our processing facility. So then even the uh, understanding and the creation of an entire supply chain of sales and marketing and distribution to then tell the do good story, which is a revolutionary brand that has the first quantifiable carbon and food waste equation associated with each product. So it's been a journey across the board and the connectivity of all kind of four of those aspects of the business combining together. And then what about like, uh, you know, a lot of food waste can have kind of trash and stuff in it. Do, do the grocery stores themselves take care of that part? Yeah, that's the beauty that we have. So that we provide them designated bins, uh, one for the produce, one for the meats, and they're kept in the cold chain at the supermarket. Uh, but those store employees actually depackage. And so that's part of the kind of requirement from the supermarket. And then when we get it back to our production facility, we do uh, kind of hand sort it through as well, as well as some metal detection. So we have a kind of multitude of steps that we ensure that going through our process, it's, it's always 100% food. Cool. And right now, what geography are you focused on? So where, where is your facility and then kind of uh, where are the grocery stores that you're pulling from? Yeah, so our first production facility is in uh, Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania. Uh, so it's about 20 miles north of Philadelphia. And uh, that's our first of its kind, $170 million facility that we built, uh, started building in April of 2020 and commissioned uh, recently. And around that kind of area, we're picking up from about 450 supermarkets as we scale that. And it's about a 150, 200 mile radius from, from where we're uh, processing it. And as far as uh, like uh, the, the facility itself, if you were going to try to grow 
more, which I assume you want to do. Do you have more capacity that you could grow at that facility or would it be more of a step of like building another facility in a new draw area? Yeah, we, we look at um, really starting to build the next couple of production facilities. I mean, our goal is to try to help solve food waste as quick as possible. And so to try to build one of these facilities in every major metropolitan area is really the key kind of emphasis and the focus of where we're driving this as a company and linking that back to kind of local farmers to grow the do good chicken and right back onto the kind of retail shelves that we do collect from the, the surplus grocery food from. So creating that closed loop system, creating that local system is a, a key emphasis of kind of what we do and how we do it. So expanding and growing into new metropolitan areas is really the key emphasis and uh, the key focus of how do we solve food waste as quick as possible from supermarkets. And how does that conversation go kind of with, with a, a poultry farmer? Are you going to people who are already growing uh, chickens and then saying, hey, we'd like for you to you know, work with us to, to grow some do-good chickens as well? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So then we're able to send them our feed. Uh, they include that into the overall diet. And then uh, we typically use a, a no antibiotic ever, 100% natural cage-free bird. And then uh, they're able to hand us back kind of those retail and food service products that then we're able to provide back onto the retail shelves. And the real emphasis there is that we're finally empowering consumers to be a part of the process to truly fight food waste and combat climate change from their kitchen by simply buying a delicious piece of chicken that now actually has a quantifiable benefit. Very cool. And then uh, do the birds kind of go through the normal supply chain of as far as getting processed? Uh, and and how, how do you kind of keep track of which ones are, are do-good chickens? So, so the auditing system is no different than how organic or conventional or cage-free and all those types of kind of things are done. So we know that every bird that is a do-good chicken is getting our feed um, and going through our required kind of supply chain and, and processes. So it, it's no different than how companies are already set up. Um, and so that's kind of really the, the key emphasis here is we can finally bring sustainability to scale um, with a unique story that's really quantifiable and beneficial for the, the animal and beneficial for the, the supermarkets and the consumers, but to do so in a way that's bringing sustainability to scale without asking consumers to change their habits. I love stories like this where it's kind of a double benefit too, in terms of, you know, not only are you utilizing food that would be wasted and probably just, you know, turn into greenhouse gases in a landfill, but you're also, you know, uh, decreasing the need for more intense production, you know, for that food in the first place, which is, you know, it's a dual benefit. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the reasons why, and maybe you could uh, state again, uh, what you said earlier about how, you know, every time you eat some chicken, it's like four pounds, right? A food waste is saved. And then also what that means for scope three emissions. Can you, can you say that part again? That was interesting. Yeah. So each do good chicken, uh, now saves four pounds of surplus grocery food, thus reducing three pounds of greenhouse gases. So it's the, one of the first ever third-party verified scope three carbon-reduced equations. And that equation is actually on the package of our chicken. So this is the first time that I've seen that we are providing consumers and corporations a truly quantifiable benefit for every purchase that you do you are saving X, Y, and Z. And that's a really powerful mission and story where we're almost kind of gamifying carbon and food waste. The quicker you're buying our chicken or the quicker you're eating a chicken sandwich that's helping to save the world, 
you can actually literally get now handed in, in kind of theoretical sense a receipt that states that, hey, this chicken or what you just did saved these amount of pounds of greenhouses and these amount of pounds of, of food waste from going to landfill. That's a really powerful and amazing mission that at the end of the day is linked to simply a delicious piece of chicken. And we can price it below organic. So now all of a sudden it's, it's, it's affordable and accessible to as many people as we possibly can. And that's kind of the part of us as a family. It's we want to be partners with everyone, right? We're not here to, oh, we are the only ones to try to solve food waste. We recognize that in five or seven years, this problem can be solved. We now have the infrastructure that's at scale that we just now need to duplicate across the country. And we kind of invite everyone to now be a part of that because our feed can go right into any existing feed mill infrastructure. And so that's a really powerful mission that then can unlock supply chains in a really different way, not asking farmers to do anything different, not asking retailers or food service providers to do anything different. It's simply now, here's a scope three carbon reduced equation associated with every pound of chicken. Right. And for somebody listening who maybe uh, has never heard the term scope three, can you give us the basics of what scope three emissions are versus other emissions? Yeah. So scope three is really the supply chain. So if you think about a, a major food service provider, they're sourcing food to then get put onto their trucks to then get distributed to their end clients. And so scope three is really the products that they're purchasing to put onto their trucks. So that kind of supply chain uh, measure. So scope three is oftentimes the most difficult to create positive benefits for and to truly kind of create a more environmentally progressive solution. So scope one and two kind of incorporate a lot of the, the campuses that the corporations have. So they can put in energy efficiency lights or put on a solar project that power their headquarters. But scope three is really defined as, as their supply chain. And supply chain is really where we can drastically improve, drastically start to implement large-scale sustainability solutions and by validating that onto the consumer or the retail aisles and engaging and empowering them, that's how we start to really transition scope three. Not just for food waste and feed, but how we do regen farmed products, how we do less uh, environment degrading crops, and how do we do cover crops, and how do we reduce our water consumption. All of those types of things are really kind of emphasized on scope three emissions. Very cool. And, and why chicken? Why start with chicken? Yeah. Um, so chicken obviously is, is massively consumed right across the country. It is uh, obviously a smaller animal, so we're able to have a, a greater impact, right? A, a typical chicken of a six and a half pound chicken is saving four pounds of surplus grocery food, thus reducing three pounds of greenhouse gases. That's massive impact for every bird. And it's, of course, able to be consumed in a variety of ways, right? I mean, most people enjoy a, a delicious piece of chicken, whether that be the white meat um, or the dark meat or everything in between. And so we wanted to really start off with a product that we could scale across the board from retail to QSR restaurants to food service in a really unique and tangible way and really tell the story of Do Good that we are all on this planet together. This is not just solely our mission. This has to be a mission that we are all collectively on together. And together we can actually solve food waste 
and actually use our food system to solve environmental problems so long as we are all recognizing that the purchases that we do every day, the food that we eat every day, does truly have an impact on the environment. I, I read somewhere that it's third party verified. So, so what's the third party that's kind of verifying this and how exactly does that part work? Yeah, so it's a company called Ruby Canyon. Um, and it took us, I don't know, close to almost two years working with all the right regulatory agencies and approval processes to really do this in a quantifiable and tangible way. So it, it was a really amazing process and unique process. Uh, but Ruby Canyon is one of the, the best greenhouse gas calculators and third-party verifiers in the world. So that, that's who we use. And then obviously we got that approved to then be actually on the package of our chicken. Mm-hmm. Well, um, talk about kind of when you're raising money for this. Did people think you were nuts? Like, hey, we're going to feed food waste to animals and we're going to sell the chicken. Or, you know, we're going to sell the meat and all that stuff. Yeah, well, we, we don't call it food waste. We call it surplus grocery food because uh, as you can kind of look on a lot of our website and, and photos of, of the food that we collect, this is food that is still kept in the cold chain. It's still food that you and I would still have a barbecue and make a salad out of. This is after any human donations can occur. Then the next best usage is to come to us. But part of that intrigue was maintaining the logistics of the cold chain. And we've built the bins that we provide to the supermarkets to essentially act like a big Yeti cooler to maintain all of the nutrient value. Because, of course, on the final feed ingredient, we're relying upon those nutrients to actually grow a great animal. And so from a fundraising perspective, it's been certainly interesting because we are part logistics and infrastructure. And then the other part of the business is sales and marketing and a chicken brand. So it's been a fascinating kind of conversation with a lot of kind of uh, major investors. And uh, we, we are proud to be supported by uh, Nuveen, who put up $170 million to build out our production facility um, and, and looking to continue to align with them and, and other great partners to kind of continue to showcase to the world that uh, we can finally bring sustainability to scale. And uh, I think it's a pretty attractive investment opportunity given the fact of we have something um, unique from a feed perspective and logistics perspective, and then uh, a very uniquely created and unique attributes for our branded products. And uh, I think if we look at and project out into the future, 90% of consumers are raising their hands saying, what can I do to help? And that's a really powerful message, and that's a really powerful statement. And so Do Good Chicken and then the next products that we will be launching are creating a revolution in what we believe is one of the largest addressable markets, which is animal-based protein. That market's not going away anytime soon. In fact, in many cases, it's growing. And we need to create a more environmentally progressive and sustainable solution that easily implements across the board to the largest companies across the U.S. And so if investors are interested in that revolution and the quantification of scope three carbon reduced emissions within our food system, I would argue that there is not a better platform and better company that is uh, situated and already at scale. That's the beauty here. We did a lot of the hard work and five years of kind of blood, sweat, and tears as a family to figure this whole thing out. There's a reason 40% of all the food that gets grown gets thrown away. No one's ever figured this out. 
what is amazing is that no one has ever told us, well, that's a stupid idea or that doesn't make sense. In fact, everyone said, you guys are the only ones crazy enough to put all of these pieces together to actually launch and create something that is needed, it's necessary, and we're doing so in a way that's inviting to every existing company, come partner with us, come do this. Our sole focus as a platform is to solve food waste as quick as possible. The quicker I build our facilities across the country, the quicker I solve food waste from supermarkets, and the quicker we provide more and more products to consumers that are actually beneficial for the world and good for our plate. And that's a really powerful mission where if only one out of every five chicken that we ate was a do-good chicken, we would solve food waste in the next five years. That's pretty powerful, let alone when I start using my feed to go into a bunch of different animals. We'll be a small fraction of these massive markets. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk, you know, kind of food waste more generally here. I, I think you've kind of described some of the problem, you know, wasting 40% more of our food that, you know, we produce just, just goes to either loss or waste. And then the amount of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions that, that stems from that, you know, at a landfill. But, you know, generally, are there foods that are just wasted more than others that we, that we should be aware of? Just like, hey, a lot of food waste comes from kind of X, Y, and Z versus other foods that maybe are lower on waste or... Is that even well known? Yeah, I think, I think we're just in the early innings of understanding and analyzing all of that. I think, um, I mean, there's, listen, there's amazing companies that are upcycling all of the food from farmers, right? You got a lot of the ugly produce companies that are doing that. You got a lot of technologies that are trying to solve at the food service or the distribution lenses. What we always promote is the first and best usage of food is we fed the humans. So how do we get as much of that food into the hands of humans as physically possible. And then the next best usage of all of that food based upon the EPA food hierarchy is to be upcycled into an animal food. And so there isn't a specific one component of food that we look at. We do take the blends of, of what the supermarket gives us. And that's part of the uniqueness behind what we do and how we do it, which is taking a heterogeneous material and creating a homogeneous output. And uh, that's kind of the real emphasis where we cannot just solely rely upon other people to try to help solve the problem. Part of building infrastructure and part of building a revolutionary changing business is recognizing the current situation of companies, working with them to first and foremost, make it economically viable and scaled and not asking companies or, or consumers to really change their habits um, and do something different. I think with the problems of climate change, we are in the climate change problem because of consumers, right? We're consuming a lot. Populations are growing. Resources are going down. There's a tremendous inefficiency in the middle. And what we're really pioneering with Do Good Foods is recognizing those systems, recognizing how big the food system is, and to try to really bring sustainability along all aspects of that and to really reinvent and to actually use our food system to solve environmental problems. So what, how does that work? It's about empowering consumers now to do what they know and that they love, recognizing we're not going to change everyone's minds. There are over 9 billion chicken consumed across the country in the U.S., 160 million consumed per week, right? There's no education program that's going to reduce that overall consumption in any timely manner. We have five, 10 years to really solve this. 
We need plant-based proteins continue to scale, but we also need to recognize that magnitude of that, that food system can actually really be a huge positive. If we create products that consumers knowing that they love that now actually have a net quantifiable benefit for the world and the earth and completely use consumerism to actually fuel the capability to do good even quicker. Well, thank you very much to Justin K. Mine for taking the time for today's episode. You can learn more about what they're doing over at their website, which is just dogoodfoods.com. So go make sure you check that out. But wait, there is more. I'm very lucky to be joined today by farmer and CEO of Harborview Farms, Trey Hill. Trey considers himself not just a farmer, but also a conservationist and a technologist. So he's perfect for the show in general. But also, he's had about three years of experience of working with Sound Agriculture's source product on his 10,000 acre farm in the Chesapeake Bay area of Maryland. Trey has been implementing no-till and cover crops for decades now, and I asked him what it was he was looking for or missing that led him to trying Source. I would say in the regenerative world, in the space that I'm in, trying to figure out how to, well, one, how to make more money farming, right? I mean, that's that's everyone's challenge. I view sustainability as like five different things that you have to kind of intermingle and co-mingle, whether it's social, agronomy, profit, but financial is always at the top. So I would say that Nitrogen use efficiency is probably hits every single dot on the farmer's balance sheet um, because one, it's really expensive. Two, it's bad for the environment, both environmentally to the, the water and groundwater, also for the climate. So getting nitrogen use efficiency to me is one of the things that we really need to cross. I don't view, you know, I use herbicides and fungicides and I don't know that they're that bad. You know, I kind of view them as like a medicine as opposed to a poison. Um, where they kind of help the crops and hopefully we don't overuse them. We try to cut that back. But nitrogen, if that can be solved, that solves a lot of our problems, right? I'd say that's what attracted me to that, you know, kind of met with them, interviewed with them, not interviewed, but just, you know, chatted and learned about it, put in plots three years ago, saw the effects of it. They do the measurement for me, you know, and now we've pretty much implemented it across everything. And those plots three years ago, can you tell people who may not be that familiar with the product, like what what exactly are you looking for there? Well, there's two different ways to look at it. It's, you know, put down the same amount of nitrogen and add source as your insurance or cut back on your nitrogen and hope that either you were over applying and the yield stays the same. Or if you get to where you were actually applying the the correct amount, which I don't know that I ever do. But in the event that I was, if I cut back, could I still get the same amount of yield out of it? You know, would it supplement that 20 or 30 pounds, which is kind of the direction we're moving is, is this, you know, trying to figure out how to cut back nitrogen rates. So the first year we were getting like two or three bushel, but where it really stood out was on an irrigated piece. We were fertilizing for high yields and thought we were there. Uh, we grow, typically we'll run like two, 250 to 300 under a pivot in terms of yield. So 250, we consider good. 300 is excellent. You know, that spots will go higher, spots will get lower. But we always thought we were putting down enough fertility. But then where we put our source plot in, we gained like 15, 20 bushels because that's where I didn't have enough nitrogen, right? You know, most of my fields, I had enough nitrogen and it was adequate. So I wasn't really seeing these big bumps. But under that pivot, it did. And that kind of let me know that it was actually doing something, um, which a lot of the stuff that farmers get sold, it's really hard to tell if anything's doing anything. So once we did that plot, I was like, wow, this is this is something that I need to look into. And then we did, you know, more plots the next year, you know, where we'd spray a load, leave it out a load, put it in a load, leave it out a load and got enough trial data out of that, that we were definitely getting 
the ROI was pretty simple. Um, it was just a matter of figuring out, do we want to go to hundred percent of our acres or keep doing trials? That sort of thing. It's kind of the methodology we use. We'll, we'll dive in the deep end, but we won't, uh, you know, we won't always touch bottom on the first year or two. Uh, Adam Lytle was on the show. He's talking about how, uh, they have the tool to kind of assess where in your fields, you know, you could benefit from source and where you might be able to cut nitrogen or where it'll just perhaps increase yield. So is that something you use on an annual basis? Yeah, we ranked them. Um, so I actually sent them my nutrient management plan. <laughs> it was just like, here, you guys run it through. And uh, they'll probably kill me for saying that because I'll have other, other farmers doing it. But they were they were like, sure, no problem. So they gave me a ranking based on management zones where they thought I would see the most impact from the product, which I thought was pretty cool because the seed guys do that. But other than that, I didn't really, I've never really had a product where people actually will give you a ranking of where their product works. And I think that that's, every product would have the same analysis of some sort, you know, where you'd be able to do that analysis, um, but most folks don't. So I found that to be, you know, pretty beneficial to me. And and we use it, but it said that we'll get improvement everywhere. I have low organic matter soils, low CECs, and I think a lot of those kind of cater to the product. You know, as you get into prairie soils and stuff, I'm sure everything, you know, it's a whole different world than, than where I am. I don't have glaciers. Yeah, that makes sense. So along with that, you know, you mentioned kind of you haven't yet got to the point where you feel comfortable reducing your nitrogen use. What do you think it will take to to get there? Because I know that's a that's got to be against every intuition as a farmer to like put less nitrogen down because it, it just feels like you're capping your own yield, I would think. Yeah, it sucks. You know, you get a good year and you're like, you know, corn seven dollars. Like, oh, I'll never have seven dollar corn again. I got to dump it on. But then corn goes to two dollars, and you're like, oh my god, I'll go bankrupt if I don't get that last five bushels. <laughs> so no matter what, you're dumping it on. I, I don't know. We're learning. Um, I was working with granular the last couple of years before they shut down, and we were really had some nice programs going. So I think just getting on farm research is the thing. I don't know how I'm going to supplant what they were doing. We were taking five acres and doing, you know, like 20 different nitrogen rates or four different rates, five times replicated, and then coming up with a analysis of the yield based on that. And it was typically where we had good cover crops and good legumes and everything else. This was unrelated to sound. Um, This was just a strictly a nitrogen use thing. And I think with the cover crops, we're getting a decent amount of nitrogen. Once you get into that cycle and you grow big cover crops and you start the carbon to nitrogen ratios get high, but they're breaking down more quickly. I think there's a lot of room for me to grow in efficiency there, but it is very, very difficult to dial it back on more than one or two passes in a field. So it sounds like, you know, kind of the catalyst there will be just continuing that on-farm research and figuring out what happens on a small amount if I dial it down and then maybe slowly spreading that to larger amounts. Is that right? Yeah, learning the products. I mean, you got sounds, you've got a few others out there doing similar things with much different ways. And I think just figuring each, each of those out and doing the strip trials and making sure right now I'm viewing sound more as insurance, whereas I should be looking at it differently. I should be looking at to replace nitrogen, whereas now I'm going, wow, if I have a really good year, this is going to give me that extra 20 bushels. You know, and I, I don't think that's the healthiest way to look at it and it's the wrong way to look at it. But with everything being so new and it's such new technology and the, the other folks are all new to it as well, that it makes me sleep better viewing it as insurance while I learn how to think about it the other way through trials. And once the trials over time prove that to me, then I'll feel a lot more comfortable and be able to start to really, you know, dive in the deep end on it. Sure. 
Great. Well, I know I'm getting close to the time I asked of you, Trey, here, but um, anything else that you would say about SoundAg or the source product specifically to other farmers who might be concerned? I mean, anything else that you would tell those folks? Um, I've had pretty good luck with it. Um, it's worked well in corn. Um, we're definitely getting paid back and it's easy. We've run fungicide at tassel to tassel, tassel emergence to tassel. So it's, it's included in a trip, which to me is much easier than when you have to add an extra sprayer trip. Regardless, if you spray yourself or you get the co-op to do it, it's 15 bucks, right? You know, 10 to 15. I mean, it's expensive to run these sprayers. Everything's gone up in price and we could talk about fuel labor, everything. The bean product I really like, it's a little higher use rate. It's three ounces and they don't push it as hard, but the cost isn't that high. And I like that they didn't come to me and say, Trey, it's a half bushel to the acre. Because that, that's like the worst thing to hear, you know, oh, it's only a bushel to the acre, which usually to me always means that this doesn't work. But if we're going to charge you a bushel to the acre, but we're always spraying beans over the top, whether it's, you know, we usually have to come back with glyphosate at some point in the season. And we're usually putting on one or two shots, usually two shots of fungicide. So it's a pretty easy application. And I think they did a bunch of analysis last year. Last year, we didn't dive in real deep with it. I think we had eight different fields with trials. And I think we averaged like three to four bushel, you know, so it's not it's not setting the world on fire, but it's, it's hitting singles, which I found in farming. You know, I used to, when I was young, I always wanted to hit a home run. And now I'm just like, man, singles are nice. Like, like if I'm about 300, 330, like I'm doing good. So I found it real easy to use and easy to get on. And then they do the analysis. And at first I was like, well, that's kind of BS that they're going to analyze my fields. You know, of course it's going to come out in their favor, but the ones where it didn't, they showed me, you know, like, look, you didn't get a yield bump here. And I was like, well, that's cool. And they've got the, you know, Adam was with granular. So they've got a little bit of a digital background when they put it together and sent me the email with all the results. It was done very professionally. And I would say equivalent to better than what I would have done on farm if I was analyzing it myself. Hmm. And the beans, that must be for phosphorus then? It's phosphorus and nitrogen. And it makes sense. It's a little bit of late season nitrogen. I mean, I'm getting a yield bump in cover crops. And I think a lot of that's because of the legumes. Um, you know, so we're put we're getting 30 or 40 pounds to our beans late season in high yield environments. This year, we, we didn't get any rain in August. So I had a lot of 50 and 60 bushel beans. But I also had a couple places that got rain and we get last, I'd say five to 10 years, we've been getting some of the Midwestern type yields, you know, in that 70, 80 bushel range. And that's not to brag, but I think it was nitrogen and trying to figure out how and when to time it without getting too much elongation of the nodes. And I think that the source product, by being able to go out there a little bit later and have the plant develop it itself, you know, and pull it from the soil, it's giving you kind of that slow release um, or slow uptake of it. So I don't know if it's phosphorus or nitrogen. I don't know. We use a lot of chicken litters in my phosphorus. <laughs> I've just got enough phosphorus, but um, I don't know. But it seemed to work well. Well, I want to thank Trey Hill for doing this interview. He's such an interesting guy, and him and I went down all sorts of different tangents in our 30 or so minute interview. And I think you actually might like some of the topics we discussed, including regenerative agriculture, carbon credits, how he reconciles, you know, spraying versus regenerative, uh, differentiation, all sorts of different stuff, including what you just heard as part of it. So uh, if you'd like to listen to that, I'm going to post it on our YouTube channel. Just search for Future of Agriculture on YouTube to subscribe to the channel and watch that video there. Or you can always just click the link that I'll include in the show notes. Thank you to Trey. Thanks again to Justin Kmine. And thanks to Sound Agriculture for their continued support of this podcast. Last but certainly not least, thank all of you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. Happy Thanksgiving to each and every one of you who are listening to this as it comes out in the U.S. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag Innovation.